Yeah. Uh, greetings from our Norwalk campus. Uh, you know, I talked to Pastor Eric this weekend, and he said, man, Charles, it has been months since I have been in Norwalk, and I haven't seen people. And I said, well, that's funny, because it has been months since I've been in Sandusky, and I haven't seen people either. So we said, well, let's just swap this weekend so that he can see some people in Norwalk, and I get to see some people here in Sandusky. And so um, I'm glad that that worked out in our schedules, and glad to be here with you this morning. It is a privilege. We are going to be in John chapter 20, so if you have your Bibles or your uh, Dwell apps, go ahead and open those to John chapter 20 this morning. That's where we're going to really spend the bulk of our time. You know, because it's through, I think, life experiences and even circumstances that, that I have learned, I think we have kind of learned to become, I don't know, hesitant at times, maybe skeptical people at times, even doubtful at times, whatever you want to call it. And I think this starts when we're pretty young, right? Because when we're young, we have that family member who promises they're going to come watch us at our sporting event or our show, but they didn't show up. And so that doubt begins to form. And then we have friends who promise to show up, that, that we're supposed to show up to help us move our apartments and our houses, but their lives got busy and they didn't come help. So we have that doubt that begins to form. Or that coworker that you covered their shift the week before and they were supposed to cover yours, but they didn't follow through. So you get that little skepticism, that doubt that forms. I'm telling you what, as parents in this room, we know this best of anyone because I have a teenage daughter who promised me she would clean her room, that promised me she would empty the dishwasher. But guess what? I came home, it didn't happen. And so that skepticism, that doubt in my mind begins to form. Or, or I, I tell you what, when my wife and I were engaged to be married, I told her that I would be rich and famous someday. Well, obviously, joke's on her. She's dealing with some disappointment in that area right now. But what about, what about the things that, that are even more important, like our experiences we've had with God? You know, God was supposed to do this thing, or he was supposed to fix this thing, or he was supposed to heal this thing, and he didn't, at least in the way that I thought he would. And so we begin to become hesitant and skeptical and doubtful toward God. And I think as we look in John chapter 20 today together, you're going to notice that there are some people closest to Jesus, some of his closest friends that were wrestling with some of this doubt, some of this skepticism perhaps surrounding Jesus. I mean, Jesus, in their minds, was supposed to come and he was supposed to conquer. But by the world's standards, he completely lost. Jesus was supposed to, he was supposed to be king. But now we find out after chapter 19 that he's dead. Jesus was supposed to be this 
annihilator of his enemies. He was supposed to, to completely humiliate his opposition, but now we find that not only did he not humiliate his opposition, but he instead died a humiliating death himself. And last I checked, when a guy dies, he stays dead. Like, for good. That's the end. There's, there's no change. It's final. But is it? So I want to jump into chapter 20 today to exactly see what's happening in the lives of some of Jesus' closest friends. And so this is how it begins today. It starts like this. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. See, her reaction to this situation and the assumptions that she made were understandable. I mean, Jesus was dead. Mary saw this happen. She witnessed it. She saw Jesus take his last breath, and now, by all accounts, he's missing. The body's gone. And so it was upsetting to her. And not only was her reaction understandable, but her, her assumption was understandable. She assumed somebody took the body or someone moved the body. Mary's assumption was not, was not that Jesus had raised from the dead. And so in her in her shock and in her hurt and disbelief and her doubt or skepticism, she ran to tell the other disciples what had happened. She ran to tell Peter and John that Jesus was missing. In fact, it says this, uh, Peter and the other disciple, John, they started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, you might not see the humor in these verses, but I absolutely love these. Because what these verses tell us is that Peter and John took off running to the tomb thinking the Lord's body was gone. But I absolutely love the second part of these verses because John, who the guy is writing these words, makes sure that he tells all of us that he outran Peter and he got to the tomb first. I love the humility of John in this. And so they reached the tomb, and they get there, and they looked inside, and sure enough, the tomb's empty. Now, they, they did look in and notice something, though, that seemed odd. It seemed interesting to them. And as they peered in, they saw the linens and the cloth that Jesus' body was wrapped in, still laying there. Now, by all forensic accounts, that could only mean one thing. Jesus' body wasn't stolen. Because if it was stolen, all those linens and cloths would have come too. And they saw these things, and there was some proof. And finally, it tells us that John here, he saw the linens, he saw the cloth in the tomb, and he instantly, he believed. He understood. In fact, verse 9 tells us it was not until then that he understood he didn't understand the scriptures that Jesus said he must rise from the dead. And so here, seeing this, John and Peter finally had the proof, all the proof they needed, and it said they believed. However, here's Mary. Mary's still struggling. 
She's still doubtful. In fact, the John 20 tells us that Mary stayed behind at the tomb. And as she stayed behind, she was crying. And it tells us that two white-robed angels, two white-robed men, appeared before her in the tomb. And they asked Mary why she was crying. And even then, because of her grief, she couldn't accept what was going on and what was happening. So she responded to these two men, and she told them why she was crying. Mary goes on to say, I'm crying because they have taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they put him. She's still in disbelief. She thought Jesus' body has been moved. And so she turns away to walk away. And as she turns to walk away, she sees a man that she assumes was the gardener. Right? So she goes up to the gardener like any of us would. And she asks the gardener, she says, did you move the body? Do you know where they put Jesus? Where have they taken him? She asked the gardener. And then the gardener spoke to Mary. And he simply said this, one word. He said, Mary, Mary, one word. And at that moment, Mary realized who this gardener was. It wasn't a gardener at all. It was Jesus. And she recognized him and she embraced him. And overwhelmed with seeing Jesus, she ran to tell the other disciples. And of course, she saw the disciples and she told them, I have seen the Lord. Mary's doubt was vanished. Her confusion was completely erased at this sight. And Mary believed. You know, it is possible at this point in time, there was maybe three people in the entire world that believed that Jesus was alive. Because let's be honest, they saw Jesus die. He was for sure dead. There was no doubt in their mind about that. But then next in chapter 20, it tells us that later in the evening, all the guys were gathered together in a room and they were gathered behind a locked door. It makes sense. They were fearful for their lives. And so they were all together, and it tells us that as they were together, Jesus appeared to them in the room. And as he appeared to them, he showed them his hands, where his wounds were. He showed them the wound in his side from the spear where it had pierced him. And Jesus Here in this moment, in this room with these guys, he not only appeared to them, but he offered them proof that it was really him. He showed them his hands and his side, and it says that they believed in this room. They believed. Now, I'm not sure where Thomas was. He wasn't part of this group. Thomas must have ran out for a Starbucks run or something. I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't there when Jesus uh, appeared to them. He missed out on this experience. But finally, it tells us that Thomas did arrive, and he came to the room. And as expected, all the guys in the room saw Thomas. And you can imagine they were excited, and it says they told him, Thomas, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. They have seen the Lord. Well, Thomas here... He wasn't quite buying it. He, was, he, he didn't instantly believe. And in fact, 
And I think about it, it makes sense. I mean, Peter and John, they saw the linens in the tomb and they believed. Mary heard uh, her name called by Jesus. She saw Jesus in the garden and she believed. And then all the other disciples, they saw Jesus face to face. Not only that, but they saw the wounds in his hand. They saw the wounds in his side and they believed. Now here's poor Thomas. He's going to need a little bit of proof of his own. And in fact, he even told the other disciples in the room that day this. He said, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wounds in his side. To which I've often been told this, and maybe you did too if you grew up in church. I remember hearing these stories, and I remember my Sunday school teacher saying things like this to me. Oh, Thomas, Thomas, he was a doubter. Don't be like Thomas. You don't want to be a Thomas, do you? Because he doubted. And I've always carried around this such this negative feeling of who Thomas was, that he was just this bad guy because he was so full of doubt. But, but uh, let's be honest, all the others in this story so far didn't believe either. And here's poor Thomas, he kind of gets the bad rap. I mean, can you imagine only being remembered for that one dumb thing you said? That'd be horrible. Can you imagine only being remembered for having the same hesitancy as everyone else had just a few hours before? So I, I want to clear up Thomas's name a little bit this morning, if I can. I propose that we discontinue calling Thomas by his nickname, Doubting Thomas. And can we start referring to him just simply as Thomas, a man who had understandable doubts. Because, listen, I don't know about you, but I've had some doubts. And I bet you've had some doubts, too. If you're sitting here in this room today and you've said, I've never had a doubt, I would say you were lying. Because we all have these doubts, and it makes sense. Because let's be honest, let's look at some of these things. There are some things in the Bible that just seem hard to believe. They seem far-fetched, don't they? I mean, let's be real. A guy gets swallowed by a whale, he lives, and then he gets puked up on the shore and goes on to tell people about Jesus. It seems crazy. Or, or, or that somehow God manages to, to flood the earth, but this guy builds a big boat and two animals just kind of get on the, the boat and they all live happily ever after that seems a little far-fetched. Or that Jesus, or that God could somehow part the sea and the land is dry and the people walk across. Some of these things are hard to believe. They can cause some doubt when we read them, understandably. Or how about this? There are some scientific discoveries people always want to tell me about all the time that seem to have a conflict with what the Bible says. There seems to be proof, and so people that can cause people some doubt when they read it. Or things like this, that the Bible teaches this thing on morality that seems to be a little outdated. It seems to be old school thought, and it goes against our culture. And so for some people, this can cause some doubt. For you, perhaps, maybe doubt comes from thinking, well, if God is so loving and he's so in control, then why in the world is there so much hurt and why is there so much chaos? It can cause some doubt. Even as we're looking at John chapter 20, I think it can cause some doubt. I mean, 
I mean, let's be honest, a guy here, he's supposed to be God, and he comes and he dies on a cross, but then he rises again three days later, and then he promised to send the Holy Spirit to us, and then he promises to come back again someday and destroy the wicked and restore the earth back to, you know, back to perfection. These things can cause some, some doubt. And this is just kind of a small fraction of the things that can cause people skepticism and doubt. It makes sense. But here's the truth about Thomas. Thomas is a man who pursued truth. Thomas's character was consistent all throughout here. Thomas was a passionate follower of Jesus. He loved Jesus. In fact, in chapter 11 of John, if you remember back a few weeks ago, when Jesus' life was being threatened, Thomas was the one disciple who, out of love and care for Jesus, he stood up and he said, well, then let's go to and die with Jesus. He was willing to follow Jesus anywhere. Thomas loved Jesus. Thomas doubted, but he didn't live a doubting way of life. In fact, I have a NLT study Bible. If you have a, you might have one of these too. And it had a little description about Thomas in here that I read. And it, it said this. It said, Thomas, he was a doubter, but his doubts had a purpose. He wanted to know the truth. Thomas did not idolize his doubts. He gladly believed when given reasons to do so. Doubting was only his way of responding, not his way of life. Thomas didn't live a life of, of settling into doubt. Instead, it, his doubt pushed him towards truth. His doubt pushed him towards Jesus. It pushed him towards belief. And if you can imagine, for eight days, for eight days, Thomas wrestled with this doubt. For eight days, Thomas pursued truth, but then it happened. Jesus gave Thomas all the proof that he needed. Listen to what it says next. So suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. To which I thought, man, what an incredibly loving and gracious and caring thing for Jesus to do in this moment. I mean, Jesus met Thomas right where he was. He didn't judge Thomas. He didn't scold Thomas. He didn't belittle Thomas. No, Jesus cared for Thomas here. And I think it's interesting. Jesus was not in the room the night that Thomas expressed these doubts. And yet, he knew what he was thinking. He knew what he was feeling. And he knew what he needed. It's incredible. I mean, can you, can you even imagine this moment for just even a second? I mean, picture this. Picture this. I imagine Jesus appearing before Thomas, and I can just almost hear the silence in the room. A pin drop as neither spoke. And I can imagine these 
just tears welling up in Thomas's eyes as he appeared, as he, as he peered at the, the Lord and he slowly reached out his hands to touch him. And he touched the wounds in his hands. And he touched the wound in Jesus's side. And I can almost just imagine without saying a word, the two of them just stood there looking at each other. And Jesus was so open, so caring, so soft in his approach with Thomas. And I could almost see Thomas's hands shaking as he reached out. I can imagine he was afraid to blink for fear of it just being a dream, and yet it wasn't. And all at once, in this moment, in this room, the silence broke. As, as Thomas, overwhelmed, he, he exclaimed, he shouted out, My Lord and my God! And all skepticism, gone. All doubt, removed. This is a moment for Thomas. This was a moment for every guy in that room. And truly, it's a moment for us today, too, because it was in that moment that Thomas laid aside his skepticism. He laid aside his doubts. And what he saw and what he experienced led him to believe. And he believed without a shadow of a doubt that not only was Jesus alive, but Jesus was his Lord and his God. And this is a powerful response. Because when we look at this, the word Lord here, it is a Greek word. It's called kurios. It is a word that means master. Thomas says, you are my master. This is personal. It means not only are you my master, but he's saying, I am yours, Jesus. I am under your leadership. I give up all that I am to you. I will obey you. I will follow you. I will live my life for you, my master. But he just says, he doesn't just call him master. He says, you are my God. This is a bigger response. This is a response of recognition, of respect. In fact, this word God that Thomas speaks, it is a Greek word called theos. It means God. It, it, the meaning of this is a meaning of power, of might, of, of greatness. It's an acknowledgement of the supremeness of God, that he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, that he is all in control. This is, this is a big response. Thomas is acknowledging here that Jesus is not only his master and leader, but that he is supreme God over all. And the other cool thing about this is this little word tucked in there. He says, my Lord and my God. This is personal. Because Thomas doesn't just say, you are a Lord and a God. He doesn't say, you are the Lord and the God. He says, you are my 
my Lord and my God. He says, you are my master. You are, you are supreme over all and you are supreme over me. And this takes things to a whole new level because it's easy to recognize, isn't it, in our lives that yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that there was this man. He did some good things. He taught some good things. He prophesied in good ways. He was pretty special. I can believe in Jesus. However, do I believe that he is Lord, my Lord? Do I believe that he is God, my God? Because that totally takes it to another level. And, and, and interesting side note here, Thomas would go on from this moment to preach the gospel and ultimately die for his faith. In fact, some church scholars that I've read uh, even suggest that Thomas was brutally killed by being speared to death in India for his faith in preaching the gospel. Thomas, among all these other believers, they believed in what they saw and they lived their lives out that would reflect their belief all the way through death. But then Jesus responds back to Thomas and he says these words. As Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. A blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Those words that Jesus spoke are words to you and to me today. Because I've often thought, well, of course I would believe if I could see Jesus. Of course I would believe if I could touch the wounds in his hands and touch the wound in his side. Of course I would believe. But Jesus said, blessed are those who believe that haven't seen. That is you and that is me. We have not seen as these people have seen. And you might even be saying the same as Thomas. Look, I'm going to need a little more proof if I'm going to believe. So let me give you a little more proof this morning. Here you go. Jesus went on to appear to Mary, Magdalene, and other women at the tomb after his resurrection. He appeared to Peter in Jerusalem. He appeared to two travelers on the road. He appeared to the disciples multiple places and multiple times. He appeared to Thomas here. He appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, who didn't believe in him until that point. He appeared to a crowd of 500 people, and many people were present and watched Jesus as he ascended into heaven. And most, if not all, of those people went on to turn this world upside down for what they saw and believed. They died as followers of Jesus Christ and they swore that he saw the risen Savior and they lived the rest of their lives declaring what they saw to be true. The fact is that you and I have all the proof that we need in the words of these eyewitness accounts that we hold in our hands, that we treasure, that we can read. We have proof in the life and the death of Jesus Christ of many, many believers who witnessed this and saw this and what took place and they saw the resurrected Jesus and they believed and we have the proof of that. But not only do we have the proof in what we hold in scripture by these eyewitness accounts, but we have proof in the life change of believers. Many of you sitting in this room 
right now who were once lost but are now found. Many of you who are sitting in this room right now who were once condemned but are now forgiven. In fact, I'm standing here before you today as living proof as a man who was far, far away from God with a heart of stone and now I am a man saved and made new. And John's own words speaks to this truth. This is how John closes this chapter. He said, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. He says, look, there's so much more that happened that I didn't record in this book. Can you imagine, however, here, John, he says that I have provided all of these stories. I've provided all of this account. I've provided all of this evidence. Everything you need to know to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who gives eternal life. I've given it all to you. And why did he do it? He says, so that you may believe. We believe. If John is the only book in the Bible we have, John's the only book in the Bible we need because it was written so that we would believe. And this belief is demanding of life change. Thankfully, This demand of life change doesn't fall on our own strength because our own strength is flawed and it's limited. No, John tells us that this life change is through the power of Jesus' name. It's through the power of our Lord and our Master and our God. And so I have one question for you today. Just one. It's the only one I want you to think about. Do you believe do you believe? And I know there's two, two camps in this room. There's a, there's a group of people in here that would say, I do believe. I've given my life to follow Jesus, and I do believe. And there's another group that would say, I don't know. I'm still hesitant. I'm still skeptical. I'm still doubtful. I, so here's what I want to say as I wrap this up. For those of you who are still hesitant, who are still doubtful, There are people in this place this morning that would love to pray and talk with you. We have worship team members. We have a greeting team with lanyards in the atrium. We have staff around. We have tech team members. We have people who would love to pray with you and talk with you this morning if you'd like to know more. So please don't hesitate before you leave today. If you're in the group of people who say, yes, I do believe, then my hope is that your belief would lead you to live a life that would reflect that belief because it's demanding. It's demanding of life change. May those around you see Jesus in your life. May the way you respond, the way you act, your attitudes towards loving people and caring for people, may those things change because of your belief in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done in your life. I pray for you today. In fact, I would love to pray for you now before you go. So let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for John. I thank you for the stories you've given us here, the message. I thank you for the eyewitness accounts that saw you, Lord Jesus, so that we may believe. Lord, for those in this room that still are wrestling with doubts, I pray 
Lord, that this chapter alone would begin to change their heart. Lord, would you open their eyes and their hearts to you today? And Lord, for those of us in this room that do believe and do follow you, Lord, may our lives just reflect that to the fullest. May people around us see something's different about us, and may it point them towards you, Lord. We love you so much. We celebrate you. We praise and worship you today, the only one who is worthy. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, have a great afternoon.